Is your business two steps ahead or always one behind? If the latter, chances are you lack data and insights to confirm your instincts. Here's the deal. Leaders are trapped in a world where data and insights are still a luxury rather than a commodity. While you might have strong intuitions about your business, my guess is you're hampered by legacy institutions and capabilities that provide only surface-level data and insights that do very little to validate your assumptions. Join me on a journey with some of the world's most notable minds who will share with you their secrets in capturing and making data-driven decisions that power their business. I'm Maury Blackman, and this is Great Minds Think Data. Welcome to today's episode of Great Minds Think Data. America has spoken. The 2022 midterm results are in, and Congress is divided. Democrats narrowly control the Senate, and Republicans narrowly control the House. As we approached Election Day, pollsters, pundits, and operatives on both sides of the aisle were either preparing to pop the champagne or drown their sorrows with a bottle of whiskey. Almost everyone got it wrong. It was assumed that voters' negative sentiments on the economy, the direction of the country, and President Biden's low approval rating was creating a dynamic for significant change, and a red wave was in the offing. As we know now, it didn't happen. Why? My guest today is Frank Luntz. Frank is perhaps the world's most renowned and sought-after communication consultant and pollster. On Election Day, Frank straddles almost every network, providing insights and commentary on how the electric has decided or not decided. We're also joined today by Lanny Davis. Lanny is a lifelong Democrat and well-known as White House counsel to President Clinton. Today, we will explore and unpack the driving forces behind the 2022 midterms, the impact of social media on the electric, and finally, what the most recent premise poll reveals about former President Trump's third run for president. Welcome, Frank. Welcome, Lanny. It's great to have you both here. Thank you. Pleasure Good to have to you be back. Here. With Frank especially. You know, Frank, I have to admit the last election really caught me off guard. I moved into the process thinking from our polling, we saw that Americans were generally dissatisfied with the direction of the country. They were dissatisfied with President Biden. They were dissatisfied with the economy. And all these things added up led me to believe that we were going to have a red wave. There was going to be dramatic change in government. What happened? Well, threefold. Number one is nobody realized that the redistricting actually was stronger for the Democrats than people expected. And that's how Republicans can get three million more votes nationwide for House candidates and still barely get a majority of House seats. Second is that people don't vote for ideas. Yeah, they vote for their pocketbook and they vote for the country's security. But in the end, they have to cast a vote for a person. And overwhelmingly, the public believe the Democrats, at least on the statewide level, had better candidates than the Republicans. And third, in the end, is that the polling was all very close on most of these races. And it was just assumed because in the past, the independents had always broken two to one Republican. The undecideds had broken two to one for the challenger. So it was assumed that it would do exactly the same. Well, we don't do anything the same anymore. Thanks to COVID, thanks to this great global rethink of our friends, our jobs, where we live, what we want to do, what we want to be. Because of this, you can't assume that any trends that happened up to this point will continue. So mark my words, we're going to have a lot of surprises over the next few years that go beyond politics. Well, if you had to talk to the leadership of both parties and 
basically advise them, what are three things that you would tell them that they really need to understand about what the American people want? Well, here's the problem. You've got 50% Democrat, 50% Republican. We really are evenly split in the Senate, in the House. The White House was close enough, but that does not make us a centrist country that's not split in the middle. The Democrats are over here. The Republicans are over here. So it looks like it's evenly balanced. But we are reaching towards these extremes. So cherish your centrists, your moderates, your people in the middle, because they're the only thing that allows you to get along with and to work with and to achieve the things the American people want. That's number one. Number two is stop calling it inflation because no human being, none of us here, the people who are listening to us, there's six of us in this room. Nobody calls it inflation except for us. I used to follow people in supermarkets, which is why I almost got in trouble several times. Because I follow them around to listen to what they, how they buy, listen to their comments. And nobody says, oh my God, look at the inflation on that salad dressing. It's, I can't afford it. It's affordability. It's cost. And it's really the cost of life. And number three, the public wants you to get it done in a word, they want results. And if you can't deliver it, they'll vote you out for somebody else. Well, when we looked at the exit polls, I think what was really surprising, you know, I, thinking about kind of the reporting of the media, they were saying as people were coming out of the exit polls, they were expressing just general dissatisfaction about the economy. And the pundits were all saying, okay, this looks, doesn't look good for Democrats. So what essentially what your thesis here is, is it doesn't matter about what they say when they're coming out. It's how they feel inside. But it's more it's not how they feel. We don't say vote Republican or Democrat. We're not a parliamentary style system. You don't vote for the party. You vote for the person. So you can feel all you want that Joe Biden screwed up or that the Republicans are too extreme or that that you don't like the people in power. But in the end, you actually have to vote for something when you go into the polls to pull the lever. And I asked a question, a single word, to describe how you feel when you step into that voting booth. Afraid? Distrust? Annoyed? Challenged? They're fascinating words. Probably the most positive is hopeful. But you're not voting for an idea. You're voting for a human being. And if that human being is flawed, then no matter how you feel about everything else that goes on, it's going to affect how you vote. The Republicans have the House. How would you recommend they govern for the next two years? I believe that the smartest thing for the GOP to do right now is to reach out to centrist Democrats and to invite them in. To reach out to those who want to get things done and say, okay, let's do it. I challenge you. You say that you want to move things, that you want to address the cost of life. You want to address crime and that sense of insecurity. You want to address entitlement, Social Security and Medicare. I mean, the truth is, and I'll be curious to get Lanny's reaction to this. Of every element in the budget, we are going broke as a country. The commitments for Social Security and Medicare are, are through the roof. And every year they get greater. And now because of inflation, they've been propped up. Our tax revenue will not cover the additional amount that we have to spend. How are we going to deal with this? Well, we can't talk to each other. Well, we don't sit around a room and have these conversations. How do we address, and, and Lenny, because he comes from the other perspective, 
How do we address Social Security and Medicare when Democrats have used that to beat the hell out of Republicans in election after election? Well, I am sympathetic and not at least uh, most of my Democratic friends do not agree that using a credit card and leaving the credit card receipts for our children to pay for is immoral. Every administration, I won't get into an argument between spending and tax cuts, we're still using credit cards to finance both. And our children, is um, it's an immoral concept. If I go around the world and have a vacation, use my credit card when I come home, I dump the receipts on my son's bed and say, you pay. So Democrats are doing that by spending programs. That is awesome. I'm going to interrupt you. That is awesome. Well, it's a true story because I've said that to my son to try to explain why I supported. You only uh, said it to him. You didn't actually do it to him. Well, uh, you should have done it to him <laughs> because then it would have be a life learning yes. lesson. Well, he learned and he, the answer. You're, you're right, Frank. The response from him was, I'm not paying. It's your vacation. You pay. And so when we enact uh, programs that we can't pay for, all using a credit card, Social Security, tax cuts, all using a credit card, say to your children, you pay. And we'll get the reaction that I think it's immoral to do that. The other thing I'd like to at least add to my comment, answer your question, Maury, is I agree with Frank, uh, but the, the big elephant in the room about voting for people and not ideas is Donald Trump. His intervention in the nominating process, putting people up that even conservatives could not stomach voting for. They either stayed home or voted for the Democrat. It is about the big elephant named Trump. And as long as, uh, with all due respect uh, to Mr. McCarthy, if he's still going down to Mar-a-Lago kissing his ring and not standing up to him, I wish that Frank were right. I don't think he's right because the Freedom Caucus will block the ability of moderate Republicans to work with moderate Democrats. But I hope I'm wrong, Frank, because you have the right idea. I just don't think with Trump being the bully that he is and McCarthy kissing his ring, that there's any hope of those moderates uh, being allowed to work with Democrats. Well, we definitely can't get through this whole podcast without not talking about Trump. But I want to stick to one one point that I think both you gentlemen have an opinion about because you you were basically in the room when it happened is the last time... We had a significant... That would make a great song title. I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, pl- I'm not plagiarizing that. I wonder if we could ever do a, a play about our founding fathers... In rap. ...and make that a song. But no way to make a rap uh, a musical about that idea and have, be successful. Well, how about, how about a, a musical about Newt Gingrich, Bill Clinton, Frank Lutz, and Lanny Davis? Could be done in rap. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... You guys are being a little bit shy here. You are both very important players in bringing the administration and Congress together to put together budgets, not just one budget, but budgets that actually, dare I say it, produced surpluses. How did you do it? So I would give Frank Luntz and Newt Gingrich a great amount of credit. Bill Clinton and people in the center of the Democratic Party who allowed Bill Clinton some breathing room to work with Gingrich. And it took uh, what Frank is describing, he's looking forward to this new Congress doing. It took those centrists to get that balanced budget. And President Clinton boasts, uh, I think justifiably, that he left a surplus behind. 
And he should also be thanking Newt Gingrich, which, by the way, I know he has thanked Gingrich. And the issue there was both sides realized that they had more to gain from a resolution than they did by blaming each other. And that's something that we've lost over the last few years. We think that politically, the advantage is in making somebody else fail rather than helping ourselves succeed. And until we change that mentality, which is driven by social media, driven by cable news, until we come to realize that we're all going to drown together, if we don't change the direction, we will continue to tear each other apart, to have elections that actually resolve nothing, to have politicians who can't sit in the same room, to have people looking to own the other side. Lanny's my competitor. He's not my enemy. And Lanny's a friend. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, and, and, and until we see each other as human beings. I went to the retreat this weekend. Instead of going to the Elton John concert, I went to the retreat for the Prom Service Caucus because I wanted to get to know the Democrats. I know the Republicans already. I actually wanted to sit with the Democrats and have them tell me their stories. Have them explain to me what they're about, why they feel the way that they do. I really want to know them and learn what's, what matters to them. And if I can do that, it makes me a better person. Hopefully they learn something from me. And it means that we can work things out. We're doing this podcast in the same room at the same time. Because we want to be able to look at each other. We want to be able to see each other's body language. That stuff matters. And I think we've forgotten the human part. Well, I was going to, you know, I, I was actually going that direction. I was going to say that when I was in college, I remember learning from my professors how polarized we had become as a nation. And that was in the 80s and early 90s. Hmm. It seems like we were much more together then than we are today. How did we get here? Social media is a major reason for that. But unpack that a little bit more. Why? Because we get our information now to affirm us rather than inform us. We seek people who will agree with us and give us evidence about why we're right and why they, and this undescribed they, are wrong. The problem has become that we no longer see each other as opponents, but we see each other as enemies. And we believe, and this is where the polling is so awful right now, we think the people we disagree with are destroying the country. We think that they're evil. And we've come to see them as not human. We delegitimize them. We dehumanize them. And once you've been either, you're canceled. You're off the grid. I, so I'll give you an example. I want Republicans to pay respects for Nancy Pelosi because she was a significant speaker. You may have disagreed with what she did. She may have been horrible to the Republicans in a very awful way. She's still historically significant. She still matters. And you may even dislike her as a human being, but her position is one that's worthy of respect. So you show up for her speeches. You offer a tribute to her as you would expect them to do the same for your leaders who make history. I get really angry when people abuse Ronald Reagan because he was so significant and they make fun of him 
because he was, to them, he was so simple. But what's wrong with simple? Why, are we, why do we have to complicate everything and add all these layers of bureaucracy? And in, in my to... mind, Frank, Reagan was clear. It was Good. black and white. You just did what I do. I call them simple. That's the negative. Clear is the positive. That's exactly what I do in my day-to-day life. Find the right way to explain things. Yeah, like one that. of my favorite Reagan stories was, you know, when they were briefing him on politics of the world and what it meant to be president. You know, this is when he was running the first time. And prior to his initial run in 76, he was being briefed on various strategies in dealing with the Soviet Union. He got impatient and said to his advisor, how about this for a strategy? How about we win and they lose? And I just love it. Just so crystal clear about what the ultimate outcome should be. Well, the other thing about him is he was very positive. And this is something that Republicans got wrong in 1994. And actually, I was in the room with Gingrich in a room about as big as this. It was on the second floor of the Capitol in what would become his office. It wasn't his office yet. And we're in the conference room. We're talking about what do we say now that we've won the majority? And Gingrich was very negative, very condemning of what the Democrats had done over the last 40 years. And he said, we want to take the Reagan approach. But he thought that the Reagan approach, because he had forgotten was to be clear and concise, but tear up the Democrats. The truth is, Reagan was the most positive. He would make fun of them. He would crack jokes about them. He was the most positive. We have had two positive presidents in my lifetime, Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama. And both of them, the philosophies are completely different, but they approached their politics from, this is why we are good, as opposed to this is why they are bad. Could I uh, interject the uh, euphoric Of course. And do a little reminder. In retrospect, I find Reagan much more positive in memory than what I saw when he opened his campaign in 1980 in Mississippi in front of a Confederate flag. There was no doubt about what his message was by doing so. When he used an ad about welfare queens uh, stealing social welfare money, There was no doubt about his message. When he almost bankrupted the country and his own budget director, David Stockman, told him that and then leaked it to the media and got into trouble, he wasn't exactly a fiscal conservative. He created uh, deficits. And finally, he allowed the Iran-Contra to occur, showing great incompetence, perhaps reflecting on his ultimate difficulties in his mental abilities, But the Iran-Contra scandal uh, using government money to finance some thugs in Central America, he finally honorably did a, uh, if I might say so, Frank Alani Davis crisis management by going into the press room himself and saying, I should have done better. And here's the truth of what Ali North did. So I got a question for you because you mentioned Reagan's mental capacity. Reagan was actually younger than Joe Biden is now. Reagan was out of office before he was 80. Joe Biden turned 80 at the time they were doing this. And we see Biden, after he's done with his speech, have not really know where he is. And that he speaks about people who have passed away. And we came to an agreement after the Reagan presidency that he was impaired. And that maybe someone should have done something about it. 
invoked a constitutional clause that would have evaluated whether or not he should be president. And the truth is, Joe Biden is in worse shape now than Reagan was at his low point. Well, I don't know whether how, how I don't do know you, whether that's true, but I think it's a fair point. How that, do you approach but, that without being partisan, but without but, being political? We know Biden's. I didn't know Reagan's impairment at the time. I thought, but when he ended his presidency, I grew to like and ultimately admire the man. But, so I didn't know it at the time, and I don't see that uh, share it. your view. I think Biden has shown a great deal of competence, and I don't see any sign. Uh, of uh, impairment in his job. I'm two None. years. I'm two years None. younger than he is, and I was just saying to a friend in the studio that I can't remember the name of Kinkos. He finally reminded me Kinkos. I could not remember that name, but I remember the name of a girl 16 years old, 60 years ago. So exactly. Does, so does Matt Gates. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, look, hey, Lanny, I mean, the, you're the spryest 77 or are you? That's, that's, a, that's a tough line, Lutz. <laughs> <laughs> but back to Reagan and, and the overall point Frank is making, I agree with. Uh, well, I think, you know, for me, I, I not I, about uh, I, Biden, never, but about the need for a, a new generation of leadership and for Democrats and Republicans in the center to talk to each other and work together. I had never heard. Frank and I never talked about that, but one of the things he just said is something that I have been thinking to myself for a very long time. Every time Reagan spoke, I felt good. And I was a kid. I was like 10 years old. But every time I heard him speak, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm proud to be an American again. And every time I heard Obama speak, a lot of times I didn't agree with what he was saying, but I still felt good. You know, he has this way of communicating. And that that's, that is something I... I think John F. Kennedy probably had too. When he would speak, people would feel good about themselves. And that's really important. But, you know, back to the social media dilemma, because I, I do agree, and I think it has a lot of legs, that people often are looking for validation of their own thinking. And so they have a hard time going outside of it. And one of my examples is, is that in my company, you know, we're a tech firm and there's more left-leaning people, I would say, than right. And there is a bit of hostility towards anyone who says that dirty word, Trump. And one time in one of our company meetings, I made this comment that just set the world on fire when I said that if one of our employees supports Trump, he's still welcome here at the company. And I mean, people became just outraged by this. Well, that's pathetic. That is pathetic. I agree. And, 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 but how do we change it? By you standing up there and saying, hold on. There are people who felt the same way about other presidents. What makes this country, what made this country so great was the willingness to tolerate alternative points of view. And why we are in so much trouble right now is that we cancel people that we disagree with. We know that, to give you one cool piece of polling data, 22% of Americans on Thanksgiving Day, are scared to death of that dinner table because they know it's going to erupt in a political conversation that it cannot have. We know that 30% of people have been at a Thanksgiving dinner that broke down because of politics. Get a grip. Are you that immature? Are you that insecure that you can't be around someone who you fundamentally disagree with politically? Are you really that? And I, this is where I blame the universities. Because teachers teach this. They allow this. I had a student of mine who came to me and said, 
I can't be friends with the Republicans because I don't, I don't share their values. And I said, you really telling me this? So you don't share my values. Why are you taking my class? Because I'm a Republican. Maybe you should. And she said, oh, but, but you're thoughtful and you're not a typical Republican. Bullshit. It's the, the level of intolerance in universities is so pathetic and they're allowed to get away with it. So you want to fix this. There are two ways we're going to fix our political system. And the two ways we're going to be a stronger country is that we have to fix social media. So it's not just predictive. These algorithms are driving the country insane. And we have to fix education to welcome those we disagree with. And I, I get so agitated at the administration who will back up anyone who will challenge any example of racism or gender inequality. But you say something about someone who's Jewish, and well, right. there's silence there. And that's crap. It's more dangerous to be active in support of Israel than it is to be active in support of the LGBTQ community. You should not be punished. You should not be afraid. If we've learned anything about college life, you cannot learn if you're afraid. And there are too many people on the right who every day they go to class in fear that their professor is going to cancel them. Lanny? Well, first of all, I agree with Frank uh, to go back to the most important point. But I think that cancel culture applies to both left and right. And the extremes, the bases of both parties are making it difficult for the problem solver caucus in the Republican and Democratic House to come together. So someone has to have the courage of what Bill Clinton tried to establish in his sister soldier moment, which is to tell the left base of his party, I'm going to stand up if it means alienating you, if it's an important principle, not just for the sake of offending sister soldier who was making a racist comment. And Bill Clinton stood up with the base of his party. And that created a noun, sister soldier moment. The speaker-to-be McCarthy has not shown the slightest evidence of a willingness to have that moment with Donald Trump. When he does, he does it with his Freedom Caucus, and he doesn't have the votes to do it with his Freedom Caucus yet. Or the Democratic Congressman, when you talked about, it's all about the Benjamins. So I was, know, I, was about to, was. I was about to go there, Frank. Uh, the, the example, I, that was a horrible anti-Semitic comment. She apologized for it, but no doubt I agree with you that she should never have said that and got off light for saying it. But even worse for me was uh, you mentioned uh, earlier a congressman from New Jersey who I worked with in the Clinton White House worked with. I knew him, Josh Gottheimer. And Josh uh, had a bill on uh, infrastructure and was ready to move the bill. And the, quote, progressive caucus insisted on not allowing that vote to come up until their trillion-dollar relief bill was voted first. And for six months, the issue was who goes first. And so our base, in a self-defeating way, caused Joe Biden to be perceived as ineffectual because he didn't stand up to them and embarrass them. That's not his way. Ultimately, infrastructure was passed. Ultimately, Biden has a record of achievement. That's pretty good. He had to stand up to people on the base of my side who were ready to be defeated rather than to get something done. So the middle of the Congress, 
Maury, maybe this is the bigger question for all of us. How do we identify the swing voter? who's about 20% of the country, maybe. That's a big number. Uh, people who vote Republican and Democratic when they split their tickets. They're out there. Those are the people that are open, that aren't in the ecosphere of the left or the right, that are willing to solve problems, that are willing to switch their votes. And Frank is the expert on, you've talked to swing voters, you understand them. Talking to people who watch Fox uh, or talking to people who hate all Republicans and demonize the opposition, they're gone. It's that middle, I liken it to a football field, between the 40-yard lines. Tell us about those people. And it's 20, it is 20% of the population who split their ballots this time. Uh, they were more likely to vote Republican for the House and Democrat for either Senate or Governor. They were more likely to be under age 40. By the time you're 40, you've settled into where you're going to vote, and you usually don't change it. Although the last few years are a little bit different because of COVID caused us to re-examine everything in our lives. You tend to be socially moderate, centrist, economically conservative. You are absolutely pro-choice in abortion, but you are pro-spend less, tax less on the economy. And so you have no home. And the interesting thing is that there's a difference between the independent swing voter and the non-affiliated swing voter. The independent swing voter says to hell with both sides. I don't like you. I don't like you. And so I'm separate from all that. The unaffiliated doesn't care. And the unaffiliated often doesn't vote in these midterm elections because they don't care enough to dislike both sides. And I think we need to do a better job of looking at the difference between the independent who's a participant and the other affiliated who is not. I want to stay with the social media thing because it's such a hot topic right now. You can't turn on the news without hearing about what Elon is doing to Twitter. Elon Musk is sitting where Lanny is. What would you tell him? I'd tell him, shut up. I like him. I like him a lot. He's a hero. He's the first multi-billionaire who young people like. And they like him because he speaks truth to power, because he's, he just acts differently. He believes in populating the world by, by sharing his, I don't know, sharing his genes. I don't remember the phrase because I was so shocked when he said it. And he's doing everything he can to do this. Young people really enjoy him. So I want him to succeed. So, so do I. But he doesn't have to be mean about it. And he was mean to his people and what he said. So I shared with uh, Maury Mike. Great admiration for him because since I'm a kid, the first space shot that Alan Shepard went into space, this man is my hero for what he's done in space. Uh, even the invention of Tesla is an amazing achievement. And uh, very close mutual friends work for him, know him, even went to college with him and say great things about him. But Frank, as usual, to the Detriment of the Democratic Party, they found Frank Luntz to summarize a lot by a few words. He's the genius at boiling things down. Shut and up. he said, shut, shut up is the answer. <laughs> well, what, 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 should he do, what should he do with this Control thyself. Now? Control thyself. Which is to say, look, this company, this technology was not operating at its maximum potential. Tell people what Twitter should be should be the open exchange of ideas without censorship, without limitation. But people also wanted to be accurate. 
and they don't want people to be spreading around lies, and they don't want people to be increasing the level of hate and anger. So we know that the Russians are involved with Twitter, the Iranians and the Chinese. And we know that about a third of all those negative tweets are not human beings. They're computer-driven. And I can prove it. And I don't really want to go into this that much, but I'll give you the example. Twice I've gone on Twitter to acknowledge my weight and to acknowledge my health situation. And when I said, look, I had a stroke, I had to lose this weight so I could live, but I'm tired of being hungry and I don't want to keep doing this. I want to eat and I have to choose between my happiness and my health, I'm choosing my happiness. So go ahead, make fun of me for being fat, which is the number one criticism on Twitter. But you look I, great, by the way. Frank. You look great, Frank. I'm, I'm so I'm overweight, and I've got I've gained weight. Not a single negative tweet, not one. It ended up as a segment on the Today Show. It ended up being featured. It, it really it took off, and there was no negativity because I never mentioned Trump. I never mentioned Republicans or Democrats. No mention of Biden. So nothing to trigger the computers to generate all that hate bullshit. Then I did it about two months later, and I mentioned something about Trump and the Republicans, and all the negative came. If you don't mention, it doesn't trigger it. If you do, it does. So we need to realize that so much of this hostility that's on that platform is other people trying to sow hate and division and anger in our population, and that's what he should have been focused on, how we're going to get them out of this platform and he started to do it by saying i want to know the technology that indicates every human being i want to know exactly how many fake accounts there exist because those fake accounts is what's driving us crazy well, when he put forward his initial offer he said i want to create a platform where it's an exchange of ideas where it's a town hall discussion where people can feel safe on both sides of sharing their points of view. So from my perspective, he knocked it out of the park. But what's he been talking about since then? Firing employees. And not even that. The way he has expressed it would be there's a better way if he wants to be effective. But Elon Musk is Elon Musk. The genius of the man, the personality of the man, the reason he's so uh, liked and loved by his friends, and I know friends that love him, it's like trying to change your basic personality, so it's tough. But let me tell you, I went against Which is what my, happened to the CEO of Uber, who believed his own publicity, right. who went to Great the extreme and, and destroyed his company. Look at the difference between Uber, the leadership of Uber, versus the leadership of Lyft. It's the philosophy and the behavior humility. It's the number one value that we don't have as a country and that we need so desperately. Rather than being so proud of all the things you've done, how about being so humble for the things you've either gotten wrong, haven't achieved, the things you need to learn? We don't teach humility in this country. We don't value it. We don't, we don't raise it up. Young people get killed because of pride, not because of humility. People who are humble stay alive. People who are prideful, bad things happen. And we're not teaching this to the next generation. Well, I know one of the things that, that we learned a lot when I was growing up is, you know, there's no I in team. And so you don't like to hear people say, I did this and I did that. You know, it's the, every time I hear Trump speak, it's I created the greatest this and I created the greatest that. And it's not. It right. never is. 
He's not the most handsome president ever. I, when he starts talking about JFK, well, it's close, but I think I'm better looking. But he's not. It just, you know, the only person who thinks that Trump who is was better looking. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who is the best looking president ever? The only ever? person who thinks Trump is better looking than JFK is Stevie Wonder. <laughs> okay. Who is the best looking president? I don't know, but it's not Donald Trump. When, when, I, when I did a, uh, my White House tours for friends and family and I studied the uh, inner places in the White House that history records, there was a closet that Warren Harding used to use and people who were with him in the closet used to say he was the best looking president. Never mind. <laughs> well, and, my, and, he yeah. came, and that was where they came up with the phrase, come out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> and it cost Harding his life. He's the only president to have died and not been autopsied. <laughs> and I want to okay, know a, why. Let's not go there. Fact. That's fascinating. Could I go back to Twitter for a second? You I want to just discuss Harding's wife and how pissed off she was with him? Because uh, she found him in the closet, and that was the end of him. Are you aware of this warning, Harding? No, you, I, this is news we, to me. We, we don't need to, to go there. But I did, Wow, you're protecting Warren Harding. Well, I did go to that closet when I did my White House tour. It's now behind a wall of wallpaper, but I was to say. Yeah, right and guess there. who's behind that wall? Warren Harding. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a bit about Twitter? I went against the grain by defending uh, free speech on Twitter, allowing Donald Trump back on. Didn't make many friends. Uh, haven't gotten, quote, canceled, but I've gotten criticized. And I quoted James Madison, and I got a lot of people, hateful people who I attract, on the left saying, James Madison never said that. So I spent a half a day looking for the quote that I had found in some citation on Google. My point is that Mr. Musk needs to figure out the difference between a bot and a hate speech, which is not free speech, and false speech that endangers the country. And there's a hard line to draw between free speech and speech that actually can harm. My only answer to the difficulty is label. If Elon Musk wants to let Trump, so be it. But if Trump says a lie that's provably false, such as Biden didn't win the election, label it. This has been proven to be false. And maybe that's the answer to the free speech quandary. But I'm not sure anybody has an answer other than the marketplace of ideas is what James Madison wrote about. Well, what different? I mean, to me, when Trump says, I won the election... Just um, label it. Well, it's a lie. But everybody who's reading it knows. No, not everybody. 40 really? per, 40% believes it because that's well, what that, the polls show. But when he says it on Twitter, it's not going to change their mind. Label it and we are honoring free speech. Something, a warning. I think that's the probable answer, Maury. But I don't have a good answer other than when I said let him on. It helps the Democrats. May he run for president. May he be on Twitter. Thank you very much. Uh, as my son Seth says, he's the gift that won't stop giving. He is hurting the Republican Party, hurting what people like Frank Luntz want to accomplish. The Freedom Caucus and people who kiss his ring are not helping conservative policies that uh, they now are in a position to enact. We should be endorsing accountability in everything that we do. Without accountability, you have no democracy. That's the purpose of the media. That's the purpose of having two sides or more sides to the equation rather than a, a single party or single individual. There's no accountability in Russia. There's no accountability in Iran. There's no accountability in China. You disagree, you die. Literally, you die. So we need to promote accountability in every aspect of technology, in every aspect of politics, the economy, and day-to-day -day life. 
That's how you have a strong country. You're here. Amen, Frank. So one of the things that's in my mind when I look at the elections and how they're all coming together, it seems to me the Democrats are more organized than the Republicans as far as get out the vote. You know, when I talked to Newt a few weeks ago, I said, how would you advise the Republicans? He said, get out the vote. Did they get out the vote? Is it, is it working? What, what's your thoughts on this? The danger in being focused on voter turnout is that you tend to use the most divisive issues and you find a way to anger people, frighten them. So for the Democrats, the strongest get out the vote message is voter suppression. We and abortion. The, we have the highest turnout. Abortion's different because abortion is an actual policy and we know where people stand on the issue. And the fact is that these states, Republican-dominated states, were putting forward legislation that was hostile to a majority of those people. So that's a legitimate challenge for the GOP. What is not legitimate is voter suppression. It is not legitimate. You can vote for weeks in this country now. You can vote at night. You can vote on weekends. You can vote anytime, anywhere in just about any state in the country. You can vote by mail. You can vote in person. You can vote early. You can vote on on the day. There is no voter suppression. Just as I don't believe the level of corruption that Republicans like to claim. They've never been able to prove it. They've never been able to show it. There are dozens of votes that are misplaced, not millions, not hundreds of thousands or even tens of thousands. There's nothing to defend. And even when they did their so-called forensic audit of the voting system in Arizona, you know what they found? Few votes that were, should not have been cast, and more of them were cast for Trump than were cast for Biden. It's a lie. And I say this as someone who's so desperate for the truth, which is the number one value right now, the number one attribute that the public wants to save this country is the truth, the relentless pursuit of the truth. And the truth is there is no voter suppression and there is no election corruption. And both sides use it to turn people out to vote. And it's horrific because it leaves us a shattered, broken, divided, polarized, toxic society. Does it bother you when you go to bed at night on election night and you don't know who won? No, because I don't go to bed on election night. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a really bad... So when, do you, when you finally get to go to sleep, does it bother you if you don't know who won? No, because I'm up until they call the winners. I was up virtually straight for 96 hours. I'm the only person, I got to get this written somewhere. I'm the only person ever to have been on the same day, same day, election day, CNN, Fox News, CNBC, MSNBC, Bloomberg, the BBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company, Sky News, and GB News. So why doesn't Frank Lentz run for president? I don't know. I mean, well, how do you do it? How do you maintain? How but, do you but, maintain? Excuse me. We did have an expression for that when I was out there defending Bill Clinton. Monica Lewinsky, uh, who I always had great sympathy for, had a lawyer. And on one Sunday morning, he did all five Sunday shows. From that moment on, you know the expression. It's called the full Ginsburg. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Luntz is just described even more than the full Ginsburg. It's the full Ginsburg on steroids. Nine on election well, how, day. So how, how do you maintain civility across all these networks? Because I'm thinking about what's going to happen the day after. I do recognize my viewer, 
and I don't deliberately... On election day, you're an analyst. You're not a provocateur. On election day, they're looking for insight, and that's the word that I carry with me. These are my 10 words that I'm carrying with me today. I carry the word insight with me, so I don't give opinion, I give insight. And by doing that, it allows me to be on all these different networks, and I've continued on them. How do you keep subjectivity out of your insight? You can't. And I analyze what I said when every interview is done, and I try to correct it if I let it seep in. And I'd say it happens if I'm being provoked which is why I don't like to appear with anyone. Lanny, I've known for 35 years, so this is different. But I normally don't appear with somebody on either a podcast or a TV broadcast or anything because they're going to have their point of view, and then I end up arguing with that. And I don't want to argue. I don't want to represent the Republicans or the conservatives. If I'm on the BBC, I don't want to represent America. I actually say to them, don't put me on with someone if you want a true independent evaluation. Let me do it on my own and let the announcer challenge me. Because the moment you create the partisan dynamic, then we go back to, even, even if we're trained not to do this, which pollsters are supposed to be. And I'll tell you the one time when I really screwed up in the last couple of years. It was the night of January 6th, and I'd been on the streets of Washington. I was on Pennsylvania Avenue. I got one block away from the Capitol. because so I wanted to see it. I want to see everything. I want to experience everything. And I'd taken pictures of it, and I realized that they're hostile to the cops. I never saw that before. People's signs are mean. I'd never seen that before. People are marching with purpose. It just felt differently. And my office is saying to me, get out of there. They're trying to break into the Capitol. Ten minutes later, get out of there. They're smashing the windows of the Capitol. Ten minutes after that, go home. No one's wearing masks. And it's getting violent. And I don't believe it because I can't see it. And I see the people around me. And I'm judging them. And I don't feel safe. First time ever they didn't feel safe in a political rally. So I, I went home and I saw the video. And I could not believe what I'm seeing. This was impossible. I would have said to you, you have to give me 100 to 1 odds that anyone would ever attack the Capitol like that or break in or actually get into the Capitol. So I'm on CBC that night, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. It's about 6 p.m. And the woman keeps asking me again and again, but how do you feel? I'm trying to analyze it as an observer, as a well-intentioned and well-informed observer. You're just trying to report, basically. Yes, and she's pushing me. And I don't accept it for the first two times. And on the third time, I listened to her. And the moment that I internalized it, I broke down on air which I think is the single worst example of losing my professionalism. But at that moment, you got Frank Luntz. You didn't get a pollster. You didn't get an analyst, communication person. You got me. And I know my voice cracked, and I had to get my composure, and I was angry at her. But I would have done the same thing because what she was trying to do is to explain to Canadian audiences, here's a pretty proud American. And let's see what he really thinks as a human being. So I've, I've, I went on Canadian Broadcasting the next day to apologize. And they didn't want an apology. In fact, they actually said this is exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be a human being. We're not computers. We're not automatons. We weren't built in a lab. You got a couple of people listening to me. They should be mad at some of the stuff I say. And they should be happy with some of it. 
if I'm not provoking a reaction from them, then I'm not doing it right. This is a really tough time for this country. And the fact that Lanny Davis and I have had these conversations forever, this is what it's supposed to be, but it's not what it is anymore. Let's talk about humans liking to win. I think that when we look back at this last election in 2020, in the nomination process, the Democrats took a look at the landscape. And, and I generalizing, I know, they took a look at the landscape and they picked a winner. They picked the person they thought could beat Trump. As we look forward into 2024, it's my thesis, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts and Lanny's, that the Republican Party is going to look at the field of candidates and pick the winner, the one they think will represent the country the best and be able to beat whoever the Democratic opponent is. And I don't think that person will be Donald Trump. Here's the problem. We now have a situation in our primary system that you have Donald Trump, eight different opponents believing the anti-Trump vote, and Trump never gets more than 35% of the vote. 65% of the Republican Party doesn't think he's the right candidate. But because you've got all these candidates splitting that 65%, Trump at the 35% moves ahead. The primary process doesn't always, it's, it's great for the front runner, but it doesn't always work because of how delegates are proportioned, because it rewards extremism, because it cuts out people in the center who can't vote in more than half the states. 18 states allow you to choose which primary you vote in. You walk into the polling place, I want a Democratic ballot, I want a Republican ballot. That's cool. But there are other states like Iowa where you have to choose Republican or Democrat beforehand. And if your candidate's in the other caucus, you can't express your point of view. Some states apportion delegates based on the popular vote they get. Some of them do winner-take-all by area. So you could get, the winner gets 35, second place gets 30. But because the winner-take-all, the person who got 35% gets 90% of the delegates. You've got these rules that I don't think necessarily reward the best candidates or the candidates that can move forward the easiest. Frank, back in June, we made news here at Premise. We ran a poll that showed Trump was dominating the Republican Party. He carried 65% of the likely voters who favored him over the rest of the field. 65, DeSantis came in at 15, and the rest of the field kind of filled it out in single digits. A few weeks before the election, the midterm election, we ran the same poll and came back with results that showed that Trump and DeSantis, the race was tightening. They'd gone from 65, Trump had 45 now, and DeSantis moved up 15 points to 30. Last weekend, we ran a poll with Trump and DeSantis head-to-head and found a dead heat. What's happening? This is an oh-my-God statistic. Like This should be leading the news right now, to have Trump at 51 and DeSantis at 49. Among Republican registered voters where Trump thinks he's way, way ahead, including his recent speech. But Trump has never been able to view himself. He is the least self-aware person (laughs) that has ever existed. And we can go back into the conversation about Trump thinking he's the best-looking president ever. I think we should ask the women who ask their wives what they think. 
this is a very big deal. And because this shows, and it's not just DeSantis, Trump also went after Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia. Trump has started to attack other Republicans who are actually more popular than he is. And I think this is the beginning of the end. And it is a very, very dangerous thing to say that because he has survived every criticism. He survived every challenge. He survived every failure. He hasn't always benefited from every success. But the idea that DeSantis is only two point, I believe these numbers. I think this is accurate. And this is the state of the Republican Party right now. And on the Democratic side, you should have asked the question, even though Biden did much better, the Democrats did much better than people thought. Your next poll is, should Joe Biden just turn to 80? Should he be the Democratic candidate for president in two years from now? Are you uncomfortable with an 86-year-old president? Because that's how, how old he would be at the end. Frank, we've actually, in the last several premise polls, asked Democrats, do you think Joe Biden should run again? And it's 50-50. And it's about 50-50. So I think the... Uh, That's a big deal, too. The admiration for and affection for Biden is clear. Whether he should run again uh, based on age is a genuine question, even among people that love the guy. But that's improved, Lanny. In June, when we did the poll, His we perform- found that 62% of the respondents from the Democratic Party said they didn't think he should run. He's so- had a good a few months of performance in the number of Democrats who would want him to run again has gotten better. But the thing I wanted to point out to you, Frank, in this premise poll over this last weekend, and it is news because I think the amount of Republicans in the sample is significant within a good statistical variation. And DeSantis is in a dead heat, whereas two or three months ago, Trump was two or three to one ahead of him. Clearly, what we have sensed is the deterioration of Donald Trump in Republican eyes beyond the fanatic base. He still has his 20-30% Republicans that act like cult followers. Clearly, above those base voters, DeSantis has shown amazing appeal. And in the general election against Biden, within the margin of error, DeSantis is slightly ahead of Biden, whereas Biden is slightly ahead of Trump. Well, from my perspective, when I look at what we've done with DeSantis versus Biden, I mean, what we've seen in the past is it was very, very close, like dead heat. I mean, we are within the margin of error, but it's still 52-48. So I'm looking at your data in front of me, and I wish that people could see this because this is really powerful. Joe Biden beats Donald Trump by six points, 53-47. But DeSantis beats Biden by four points, 52-48. There's a complete switch depending on who the nominee is. This is the worst information that Donald Trump could ever have right now. Like, this is mind-blowing. This is significant. Because it says that not only could Donald Trump did, and he did cost Republican seats in the off-year election, he could actually cost them seats in 2024 and the presidency. I can't think of a worse conclusion. But what you need to figure out, which you don't know yet, is this Ron DeSantis being applauded for doing so well in Florida, or is this the condemnation of Donald Trump for all the chaos and all the yelling and screaming and what he's done in the political process? We don't know that yet. It's probably a mixture of both. But we do know is that today, let's mark this day. On November 21st, 2022, your polling showed for the first time 
that Donald Trump is statistically a significantly worse candidate for Republicans than Ron DeSantis. Can I add, Frank, that the same polling showed Trump overwhelmingly ahead of DeSantis three or four months ago. So the trend has been unmistakable in back-to-back polling. And also, Donald Trump versus Biden has been 50-50 dead heat until this weekend's poll. So the overwhelming conclusion here is that Trump is less and less invincible. But as a way to conclude this podcast, I would ask listeners, people who pay attention to this stuff, to follow the polling much less than they have. Because in the end, it's not who's winning the horse race, but it's what the horses themselves are saying that matters, saying and doing that we will be a better informed electorate if we have less stories and less focus on polling and much more focus on the actual policies and the consequences and impact of those policies on the public. What we've learned from 2022 is that people have a way to surprise everyone, even the experts. In 2024, let's focus less on the surprises and more on the substance. Could I add one other? I agree completely. One other uh, issue that pollsters and pundits, uh, who certainly uh, overwhelmed me and affected my misjudgments and expectations, are failing to capture. And typically, Frank does capture it because he's talking to swing voters more than we are. And that is, it's one thing to ask a voter, what's bothering you? And then have all the pundits talking about inflation, immigration, and crime. Another thing to ask voters... What's motivating you to vote for a particular candidate? And Frank is right. It's about people. And I also would say, Frank, we all underestimated the abortion issue as a salient issue below inflation that caused people to vote and also threat of democracy. That wasn't listed when you ask what's most important to you. But under the surface, it caused those swing voters, those 20 percent, more than we expected to vote for the Democratic candidates. Frank, whenever we conclude our podcast, we always ask our star guest, which you are today, thank you very much for coming, to leave us with three insights that they'd like to leave behind. Okay, insight number one is you're desperate if I'm your star guest. (laughs) No, absolutely not. You're really pulling from the bottom of the barrel, so that's that's insight number one. You know what? You're you're being humble. You're fantastic. We appreciate you being here. Uh, Insight number two is that... Even democracies, strong democracies like us, can fail. The Romans were the top power in the globe until they weren't. The Greeks were the top. The Mesopotamians were the top. The Egyptians, the British, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French, the Spanish. Century after century, great nations have risen, led, and fallen. So just because we are number one now, doesn't mean that by the time the listener's children are our age, doesn't mean we'll be number one. Take that seriously. And number three, we say we're doing it all for our kids. We're doing it all for the next generation. Prove it. If you really believe it, then address issues of Social Security and Medicare. If you really believe it, you can't have a debt. People go bankrupt. Countries go bankrupt. We've seen it. And tell people the truth. They can handle it. And they deserve it. 
those are my three insights. Thank you very much, Frank. Thank you, Lanny. It was great having you.